0: Chapter Twelve of *The Jewel of Seven Stars*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. *The Jewel of Seven Stars* by Bram Stoker. Chapter Twelve, The Magic Coffer. When we recovered our amazement, which seemed to last unduly long, we did not lose any time carrying the mummy through the passage and hoisting it up the pit shaft. I went first to receive it at the top. As I looked down, I saw Mr. Trelawney lift the severed hand and put it in his breast, manifestly to save it from being injured or lost. We left the dead Arabs where they lay. With our ropes we lowered our precious burden to the ground, and then took it to the entrance of the valley where our escort was to wait. To our astonishment, we found them on the move. When we remonstrated with the sheikh, he answered that he had fulfilled his contract to the letter. He had waited the three days as arranged. I thought that he was lying to cover up his base intention of deserting us, and I found when we compared notes that Trelawney had the same suspicion. It was not till we arrived at Cairo that we found he was correct. It was the 3rd of November, 1884, when we entered the mummy pit for the second time. We had reason to remember the date. We had lost three whole days of our reckoning, out of our lives, whilst we had stood wondering in that chamber of the dead. Was it strange, then, that we had a superstitious feeling with regard to the dead queen, Tara, and all belonging to her? Is it any wonder that it rests with us now, with a bewildering sense of some power outside ourselves or our comprehension? Will it be any wonder if it go down to the grave with us at the appointed time, if, indeed, there be any graves for us who have robbed the dead? He was silent for quite a minute before he went on. "'We got to Cairo all right, and from there to Alexandria, where we were to take ship by the massagery service to Marseilles, and go thence by express to London. But the best-laid schemes a-mice and men, and men gang aft the glade. At Alexandria, Trelawney found waiting a cable stating that Mrs. Trelawney had died in giving birth to a daughter. Her stricken husband hurried off at once by the Orient Express, and I had to bring the treasure alone to the desolate house. I got to London all safe. There seemed to be some special good fortune to our journey. When I got to this house the funeral had long been over. The child had been put out to nurse, and Mr. Trelawney had so far recovered from the shock of his loss. THAT HE HAD SET HIMSELF TO TAKE UP AGAIN THE BROKEN THREADS OF HIS LIFE AND HIS WORK. THAT HE HAD HAD A SHOCK AND A BAD ONE WAS APPARENT. THE SUDDEN GRAY IN HIS BLACK HAIR WAS PROOF ENOUGH IN ITSELF, BUT, IN ADDITION, THE STRONG CAST OF HIS FEATURES HAD BECOME SET AND STERN. SINCE HE RECEIVED THAT CABLE IN THE SHIPPING OFFICE AT ALEXANDRIA, I HAVE NEVER SEEN A HAPPY SMILE ON HIS FACE work is the best thing in such a case and to his work he devoted himself heart and soul the strange tragedy of his loss and gain for the child was born after the mother's death took place during the time that we stood in that trance in the mummy pit of queen terra it seemed to have become in some way associated with his egyptian studies and more especially with the mysteries connected with the queen He told me very little about his daughter, but that two forces struggled in his mind regarding her was apparent. I could see that he loved, almost idolized her, yet he could never forget that her birth had cost her mother's life. Also there was something whose existence seemed to wring his father's heart, though he would never tell me what it was again he once said in a moment of relaxation of his purpose of silence she is unlike her mother but in both feature and color she has a marvelous resemblance to the pictures of queen terra he said that he had sent her away to people who could care for her as he could not and that till she became a woman she should have all the simple pleasures that a young girl might have and that were best for her I would often have talked with him about her, but he would never say much. Once he said to me, "'There are reasons why I should not speak more than is necessary. Some day you will know and understand.' I respected his reticence, and beyond asking after her on my return after a journey I have never spoken of her again. I had never seen her till I did so in your presence. Well, when the treasures which we had, uh, taken from the tomb had been brought here, Mr. Trelawny arranged their disposition himself. The mummy, all except the severed hand, he placed in the great ironstone sarcophagus in the hall. This was wrought for the Theban high priest Uni, and is, as you may have remarked, all inscribed with wonderful invocations to the old gods of Egypt. The rest of the things from the tomb he disposed about his own room, as you have seen. Amongst them he placed, for special reasons of his own, the mummy hand. I think he regards this as the most sacred of his possessions, with perhaps one exception. That is the carven ruby which he calls the jewel of seven stars, which he keeps in that great safe which is locked and guarded by various devices as you know. I dare say you find this tedious, but I have had to explain it so that you should understand all up to the present. It was a long time after my journey with the mummy of Queen Terra when Mr. Trelawney reopened the subject with me. He had been several times to Egypt, sometimes with me and sometimes alone, and I had been several trips on my own account or for him, but in all that time nearly sixteen years he never mentioned the subject unless when some pressing occasion suggested if it did not necessitate a reference one morning early he sent for me in a hurry i was then studying in the british museum and had rooms in hart street when i came he was all on fire with excitement I had not seen him in such a glow since before the news of his wife's death. He took me at once into his room. The window blinds were down and the shutters closed. Not a ray of daylight came in. The ordinary lights in the room were not lit, but there were a lot of powerful electric lamps, fifty candle power at least, arranged on one side of the room. The little bloodstone table on which the heptagonal coffer stands was drawn to the center of the room. The coffer looked exquisite in the glare of light which shone on it. It actually seemed to glow as if lit in some way from within. What do you think of it? he asked. It is like a jewel, I answered. You may well call it the sorcerer's magic coffer, if it often looks like that. It almost seems to be alive. Do you know why it seems so? From the glare of the light, I suppose? Light, of course, he answered, but it is rather the disposition of light. As he spoke, he turned up the ordinary lights of the room and switched off the special ones. The effect on the stone box was surprising. In a second, it lost all its glowing effect. It was still a very beautiful stone, as always, but it was stone and no more. "'Do you notice anything about the arrangement of the lamps?' he asked. "'No.' They were in the shape of the stars in the plough, as the stars are in the ruby. The statement came to me with a certain sense of conviction. I do not know why, except that there had been so many mysterious associations with the mummy and all belonging to it that any new one seemed enlightening. I listened as Trelawny went on to explain, For sixteen years I have never ceased to think of that adventure, or to try to find a clue to the mysteries which came before us. But never until last night did I seem to find a solution. I think I must have dreamed of it, for I woke all on fire about it. I jumped out of bed with a determination of doing something, before I quite knew what it was that I wished to do. Then all at once the purpose was clear before me. There were allusions in the writing on the walls of the tomb to the seven stars of the great bear that go to make up the plough and the north was again and again emphasized. The same symbols were repeated with regards to the magic box, as we called it. We had already noticed those peculiar translucent spaces in the stone of the box. You remember the hieroglyphic writing had told that the jewel came from the heart of an aerolite, and that the coffer was cut from it also? It might be, I thought, that the light of the seven stars, shining in the right direction, might have some effect on the box or something within it. I raised the blind and looked out. The plough was high in the heavens, and both its stars and the pole star were straight opposite the window. I pulled the table with the coffer out into the light, and shifted it until the translucent patches were in the direction of the stars instantly the box began to glow as you saw it under the lamps though but slightly i waited and waited but the sky clouded over and the light died away so i got wires and lamps you know how often i use them in experiments and tried the effect of electric light it took me some time to get the lamps properly placed so that they would correspond to the parts of the stone but the moment i got them right the whole thing began to glow as you have seen it i could get no further however there was evidently something wanting all at once it came to me that if light could have some effect there should be in the tomb some means of producing light for there could not be starlight in the mummy pit in the cavern. Then the whole thing seemed to become clear. On the bloodstone table, which has a hollow carved in its top, into which the bottom of the coffer fits, I laid the magic coffer, and I at once saw that the odd protuberances so carefully wrought in the substance of the stone corresponded in a way to the stars in the constellation, these then were to hold lights eureka i cried all we want now is the lamps i tried placing the electric lights on or close to the protuberances but the glow never came to the stone so the conviction grew on me that there were special lamps made for the purpose if we could find them a step on the road to solving the mystery should be gained But what about the lamps? I asked. Where are they? When are we to discover them? How are we to know them if we do find them? What—he stopped me at once. One thing at a time, he said quietly. Your first question contains all the rest. Where are these lamps? I shall tell you. In the tomb. In the tomb? I repeated in surprise. Why, you and I searched the place ourselves from end to end, and there was not a sign of a lamp, not a sign of anything remaining when we came away the first time, or on the second, except the bodies of the Arabs. Whilst I was speaking, he had uncoiled some large sheets of paper which he had brought in his hand from his own room. These he spread out on the great table, keeping their edges down with books and weights. I knew them at a glance. They were the careful copies which he had made of our first transcripts from the writing in the tomb. When he had all ready, he turned to me and said slowly, Do you remember wondering, when we examined the tomb, at the lack of one thing which is usually found in such a tomb? Yes, there was no Serdab. The Serdab, I may perhaps explain said Mr. Corbeck to me, is a sort of niche built or hewn in the wall of a tomb. Those which have as yet been examined bear no inscriptions, and contain only effigies of the dead for whom the tomb was made." Then he went on with his narrative. Trelawney, when he saw that I had caught his meaning, went on speaking with something of his old enthusiasm. I have come to the conclusion that there must be a serdab, a secret one. We were dull not to have thought of it before. We might have known that the maker of such a tomb, a woman who had shown in other ways such a sense of beauty and completeness, and who had finished every detail with a feminine richness of elaboration, would not have neglected such an architectural feature. Even if it had not its own special significance in ritual, she would have had it as an adornment. Others had had it, and she liked her own work to be complete. Depend upon it, there was, there is, a serdab, and that in it, when it is discovered, we shall find the lamps. Of course, had we known then what we know now, or at all events surmise, that there were lamps, we might have suspected some hidden spot, some cachet, I'm going to ask you to go to Egypt again, to seek the tomb, to find the serdab, and to bring back the lamps. And if I find there is no serdab, or if, discovering it, I find no lamps in it, what then? He smiled grimly with that saturnine smile of his, so rarely seen for years past, as he spoke slowly. Then you will have to hustle till you find them good i said he pointed to one of the sheets here are the transcripts from the chapel at the south and the east i have been looking over the writings again and i find that in seven places round this corner are the symbols of the constellation which we call the plough which queen terra held to rule her birth and her destiny i have examined them carefully and i notice that they are all representations of the groupings of the stars as the constellation appears in different parts of the heavens they are all astronomically correct and as in the real sky the pointers indicate the pole star so these all point to one spot on the wall where usually the serdab is to be found bravo i shouted for such a piece of reasoning demanded applause He seemed pleased as he went on. When you are in the tomb, examine this spot. There is probably some spring or mechanical contrivance for opening the receptacle. What it may be, there is no use guessing. You will know what best to do when you are on the spot. I started the next week for Egypt and never rested till I stood again in the tomb. I had found some of our old following, and was fairly well provided with help. The country was now in a condition very different to that in which it had been sixteen years before. There was no need for troops or armed men. I climbed the rock face alone. There was no difficulty, for in that fine climate the woodwork of the ladder was still dependable. It was easy to see that, in the years that had elapsed, there had been other visitors to the tomb, and my heart sank within me when I thought that some of them might by chance have come across the secret place. It would be a bitter discovery, indeed, to find that they had forestalled me, and that my journey had been in vain. The bitterness was realized when I lit my torches and passed between the seven-sided columns to the chapel of the tomb. There, in the very spot where I had expected to find it, was the opening of a surdab, and the surdab was empty. But the chapel was not empty, for the dried-up body of a man in Arab dress lay close under the opening, as though he had been stricken down i examined all around the walls to see if Trelawney's surmise was correct and i found that in all the positions of the stars as given the pointers of the plough indicated a spot to the left hand or south side of the opening of the serdab where was a single star in gold i pressed this and it gave way THE STONE WHICH HAD MARKED THE FRONT OF THE serdab AND WHICH LAY BACK AGAINST THE WALL WITHIN, MOVED SLIGHTLY. ON FURTHER EXAMINING THE OTHER SIDE OF THE OPENING, I FOUND A SIMILAR SPOT, INDICATED BY OTHER REPRESENTATIONS OF THE CONSTELLATION, BUT THIS WAS ITSELF A FIGURE OF THE SEVEN STARS, AND EACH WAS wrought IN BURNISHED GOLD. I PRESSED EACH STAR IN TURN, BUT WITHOUT RESULT. Then it struck me that if the opening spring was on the left, this on the right might have been intended for the simultaneous pressure of all the stars by one hand of seven fingers. By using both my hands, I managed to effect this. With a loud click, a metal figure seemed to dart from close to the opening of the serdab. The stone slowly swung back to its place and shut with a click the glimpse which i had of the descending figure appalled me for the moment it was like that grim guardian which according to the arabian historian ibn abn al hokin the builder of the pyramids king sarid ibn salhuk placed in the western pyramid to defend its treasure a marble figure upright with lance in hand with on its head a serpent wreathed. When any approached, the serpent would bite him on one side, and twining about his throat and killing him, would return again to his place. I knew well that such a figure was not wrought to pleasantry, and that to brave it was no child's play. The dead Arab at my feet was proof of what could be done. So I examined again along the wall, AND FOUND HERE AND THERE CHIPPINGS AS IF SOMEONE HAD BEEN TAPPING WITH A HEAVY HAMMER. THIS, THEN, HAD BEEN WHAT HAPPENED. THE GRAVE ROBBER, MORE EXPERT AT HIS WORK THAN WE HAD BEEN, AND SUSPECTING THE PRESENCE OF A HIDDEN SERDAB, HAD MADE essay TO FIND IT. HE HAD STRUCK THE SPRING BY CHANCE, HAD RELEASED THE AVENGING TREASURER, AS THE ARABIAN WRITER DESIGNATED HIM. The issue spoke for itself. I got a piece of wood and, standing at a safe distance, pressed with the end of it upon the star. Instantly, the stone flew back. The hidden figure within darted forward and thrust out its lance. Then it rose up and disappeared. I thought I might now safely press on the seven stars, and did so. Again, the stone rolled back, and the treasurer flashed by to his hidden lair. I repeated both experiments several times, with always the same result. I should have liked to examine the mechanism of that figure of such malignant mobility, but it was not possible without such tools as could not easily be had. It might be necessary to cut into a whole section of the rock, Some day I hope to go back, properly equipped, and attempt it. Perhaps you do not know that the entrance to a serdab is almost always very narrow. Sometimes a hand can hardly be inserted. Two things I learned from this serdab: The first was that the lamps, if lamps at all there had been, could not have been of large size, and secondly that they would be in some way associated with Hathor, whose symbol, the hawk in a square with the right top corner forming a smaller square, was cut in relief on the wall within and colored the bright vermilion which we had found in the stele. Hathor is the goddess who, in Egyptian mythology, answers to Venus of the Greeks, in as far as she is the presiding deity of beauty and pleasure. In the Egyptian mythology, however, each god has many forms, and in some aspects, Hathor has to do with the idea of resurrection. There are seven forms or variants of the goddess. Why should not these correspond in some way to the seven lamps? That there had been such lamps, I was convinced. The first grave robber had met his death the second had found the contents of the Serdab. The first attempt had been made years since. The state of the body proved this. I had no clue to the second attempt. It might have been long ago, or it might have been recently. If, however, others had been to the tomb, it was probable that the lamps had been taken long ago. Well, all the more difficult would be my search, for undertaken it must be that was nearly three years ago and for all that time i have been like the man in the arabian nights seeking old lamps not for new but for cash i dared not say what i was looking for or attempt to give any description for such would have defeated my purpose but i had in my own mind at the start a vague idea of what i must find In process of time this grew more and more clear, till at last I almost overshot my mark by searching for something which might have been wrong. The disappointments I suffered and the wild goose chases I made would fill a volume, but I persevered. At last, not two months ago, I was shown by an old dealer in Mosul one lamp such as I had looked for. I had been tracing it for nearly a year, always suffering disappointment, but always buoyed up to further endeavor by a growing hope that I was on the track. I do not know how I restrained myself when I realized that, at last, I was at least close to success. I was skilled, however, in the finesse of eastern trade, and the jew arab portuguese trader met his match. I wanted to see all his stock before buying, and one by one he produced, amongst masses of rubbish, seven different lamps. Each of them had a distinguishing mark, and each and all was some form of the symbol of Hathor. I think I shook the imperturbability of my swarthy friend by the magnitude of my purchases for in order to prevent him guessing what form of goods i sought i nearly cleared out his shop at the end he nearly wept and said i had ruined him for now he had nothing to sell he would have torn his hair had he known what price i should ultimately have given for some of this stock that perhaps he valued least i parted with most of my merchandise at normal price as i hurried home I did not dare to give it away, or even lose it, lest I should incur suspicion. My burden was far too precious to be risked by any foolishness now. I got on as fast as it is possible to travel in such countries, and arrived in London with only the lamps and certain portable curios and papyri which I had picked up on my travels. Now, Mr. Ross, you know all I know and I leave it to your discretion how much, if any of it, you will tell Miss Trelawney." As he finished, a clear young voice said behind us, "'What about Miss Trelawney? She is here!' We turned, startled, and looked at each other inquiringly. Miss Trelawney stood in the doorway. We did not know how long she had been present or how much she had heard. End of chapter twelve recording by Roger Moline